Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the latest in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute, or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. In this special bonus episode, we look back at the visit of international best-selling author George R.R. Martin, who came to the IFI last August as part of Dublin 2019 and Irish Worldcon. Following a screening of Fred M. Wilcox's 1956 sci-fi classic Forbidden Planet, George sat down with Worldcon's Maura McHugh to talk about the film, his inspirations, and to take some questions from the audience. Enjoy. I was just wondering, um, can you tell us the first time you saw the uh, Forbidden Planet, what age you were and, and the effect it had on you when you watched it? Well, that's an interesting question. I often try to remember what was the first time I saw it. I, I don't know. Um, I was born in 1948. Uh, the film was uh, released in '56, so I would have been eight years old. Uh, and I think I may have seen it uh, on its first release at eight years old at the DeWitt Theater in, in Bayonne, New Jersey, which was our, our biggest uh, theater in town. But it's possible my memory is, uh, is playing tricks on me. You know, in, in those days, of course, uh, no streaming services, no internet, no Blu-rays, no DVDs, no VHS tapes. If you missed a movie when it was in theater, you had a hope that someday it would come on television. And you had to happen to catch it when it came on television yeah. because it might not come on television again for another year. And no way to record it. <laughs> right, right. Uh, when I started going to science fiction conventions, though, uh, in those days, again, I started going to conventions in, in 1971, still before VHS tapes or DVDs or any of that. Conventions in those days had film rooms uh, in which you could see many of the classic science fiction films that you may have missed in the theaters and missed when they rarely ran on TV. So I, it was certainly part of some of those film rooms where they would show it probably on a 16 millimeter version, which was the thing that you could get for small projectors back then. Let me let me talk a little about the about this for those of you who may not know it. It was made in 1956. <clears throat> the 50s were a, a great era for science fiction film. Science fiction well, television had started in the late 40s, and of course we'd had the atomic bomb. We were living in the space age. We had we in America we'd captured the German V2 rockets and we were testing them down in White Sands. And of course, Hiroshima and Nagasaki had gone up in atomic clouds. It was the atomic age. It was the space age. And, and only a year after this, uh, the Russians would launch Sputnik, the first artificial satellite, and send all of America into a panic that we were behind the Russians in space. So in the early television eras, there was a lot of uh, science fiction television, shows that are largely forgotten these days. Uh, there was uh, Tom Corbett's Space Cadet, uh, based on loosely on material from Robert A. Heinlein. Um, there was Captain Video, which was on the old du Dumont network, which is largely forgotten today. It was the third network in the early days of American television. And Captain Video, a 15-minute daily show, five days a week, 15 minutes live, 
um, mm. was Dumont's most successful show. Today, they did hundreds of shows, but because it was live, like 20 of them survived. And Captain Video and his sidekick, who was a kid called the Video Ranger, uh, would have these space adventures, which were all on like one set. And occasionally, when they ran short, uh, Captain Video would say, Video Ranger, let's see what's happening in the Old West. And they would turn it on and watch an adventure of Texas Rangers in the Old West, who were evidently the ancestors of the Video Rangers. Um, there was Rocky Jones Space Ranger, which is the only one that survives because they made that one on film. And you can still get uh, Rocky Jones tapes. But these were all kiddie shows. There was the Flash Gordon show too that was made in West Germany, but syndicated in the United States. And the spaceships all looked pretty much like V2 rockets. In fact, some of them were V2 rockets when they just uh, <laughs> cut in the, the footage of them being tested. Television was a very cheap medium then, and cheap and sleazy and all that, but the success of these shows did not go unnoticed in Hollywood. And beginning in the early 50s, we started to see some science fiction films that are still remembered today. Films like uh, The Thing from Another World, um, the first version of The Thing, which been, has been remade several times. Uh, George Powell did War of the Worlds, uh, uh, actually a very nice version of War of the Worlds starring Gene Barry that came out. Um, in 51, there was The Day the Earth Stood Still with Michael Rennie and uh, Patricia Neal. Again, a classic version, um, remade terribly in more recent years. Um, and th there, were, there were several others. Uh, MGM at that time was the premier studio. And they watched people like 20th Century Fox and Republic Pictures and RKO making these science fiction films with varying degrees of success. And they decided to get into the game, and this was Forbidden Planet. And these other movies were, most of them were black and white. Uh, World of Worlds wasn't, but Day the Earth still was, uh, the thing was. They decided they would make a A picture, a science fiction A picture, and Forbidden Planet was uh, the one that they, uh, they came up with. The, the first two screenwriters who uh, came up with the story, uh, you, you saw their credits there, Adler and uh, Irving Block and Alan That's Adler, nice. yeah. they produced a, a treatment for a, a thing called Fatal Planet, which was set on Mercury, believe it or not, in the, in the far future year of 1976. Uh, fortunately, then they gave it to a screenwriter named Cyril Hume, who uh, changed it, changed the title to Forbidden Planet and, and wrote the screenplay that you saw. You know, there's, a, there's always a story about the, uh, the guy who saw a Shakespeare play for the first time and asked, was asked, what, what, do you, what did you think of it? And he said, well, it was full of cliches. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you've ever seen Citizen Kane, which is considered one of the greatest films of all time, a lot of uh, young people seeing Citizen Kane for the first time don't understand what all the fuss was about. You know, it's a pretty good story. Orson Welles is, is great and all that, but the real shock of Citizen Kane was the cinematic techniques that were used for the first time in that uh, film, which really revolutionized the way directors shot movies. Except it revolutionized it to such an extent that virtually every movie since then uses the same techniques. Yeah. So you, when you see it, you don't realize how revolutionary it was. Yeah, it's like you know we're standing on the shoulders of giants. All the all right. the every and every era has a new giant, a new. And so what looks like new to us is actually a reinvention of what's gone before. 
At Forbidden Planet is the same case. This, this was a hugely important film in the history of science fiction in television and film. Um, it was the first film that showed human beings, Earthmen, from Earth going out to the stars. Uh, there had been a few earlier films that had a going on rocket ships, as they called them, to Mars or to Venus. And of course there have been many films with aliens coming to Earth, like The Thing from Another World or War of Worlds. But this had us going out to the stars in a starship of our own invention and colonizing the galaxy. Um, all the movies since, um, in particular, there's a show some of you may remember, Star Trek. Have you heard of that show? Yeah, and they yeah. had a hyperdrive in this. Uh, yes, they, they had a hyperdrive, and, and when they're getting out in the deceleration procedure, they're staring on little, standing on little circular yeah, plates uh, that, really. that look strangely like the transporter beam. And uh, the, the central triad of the Commander Adams, yeah. the executive officer, and the doctor is strangely similar to the central triad yeah. of Star Trek with uh, the doctor and Spock. Yeah. Uh, he, and the captain, he, he, you know, he scrambled up a little, mm -hmm. and instead of, you know, it's, it's uh, Jerry Farmer, who's the space wolf, who's uh, got it's a girl on every planet, instead of Captain Kirk, and, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, the doctor who is the cold, logical one, instead of the executive officer at Spock. But you can clearly see, uh, you know, where Roddenberry uh, appropriated many, many ideas yeah. from this. Um, and went forward with it. And I mean, even, you know, the, the device on the belt, and he takes out, and it's got a little camera in it. Mm -hmm. it's, a, I mean, it's actually very interesting watching how, you know, really interesting ideas about how technology would be used if you could just do, you know, anything. It's, it's a really, and actually what's very fascinating about the film for me was how strong they wanted to create this real world of... Um, a real spaceship and there's always people running and moving in the background it's like in Alien I remember uh, Ripley, uh, not sorry Ripley um, uh, the director said that he uh, every button did something on the set it right. wasn't just fake so when you look at that spaceship it actually it feels real and the terms, it actually reminds me a lot of submarine technology when I was looking at it, even the way they reacted, the way they did things and it all contributes to this sense of realness. They're not being arch, they're not being funny. They really want you to believe this is right, you know, right. a spaceship. And it, it, it did seem tremendously believable. Of course, Leslie Nielsen, of course, later became known as a, as a co comic actor yeah. in the police story movies, but uh, at this time he was one of MGM's you know, hot leading men who they hoped to make a, a big star out of. Anne Francis was a new discovery, mm. um, playing Altera. Uh, the real star of the movie, of course, was Robbie the Robot. Yes, yes. And is unless you were there in 1956 uh, with my eight-year-old self, you may not realize how revolutionary Robbie was. There had been robots before. Uh, obviously, the, the term robot was invented by Carl Capek in RUR. Um, there was a robot on Captain Video, Tobor, was one of Captain Video's archenemies, he was yeah. that Tobor's robot spelled backwards. And he was a, a cardboard box with a guy inside it, with a square head and, you know, arms that yeah. jolted around. Uh, Gort in The Day the Earth Stood Still was a large silver guy who, who, you know, could destroy worlds, but 
all he mostly did was walk down a, a plank and all that. Yeah. And they were all with two characteristics of the robot. First of all, they all eventually rebelled against their master, yeah. well, except for Gord. That was the function of robots from RUR, you know? It's like the Frankenstein myth, you know? Sooner or later, the creation re rebels against the maker. And that's what you expected if you were a science fiction fan. The minute Robbie came in, I went, you know, me and every other fan of that was expecting, well, this is the villain, and sooner or later, he's gonna rebel against his maker or something like that. And the other thing was how convincing he was, because. He looked like a real robot. You could see his head, and you could see yeah, yeah. things whirring around, and lights blinking, and his, his ears were turning, and it, it wasn't just a cardboard box with a guy inside. Now, of course, there was a guy inside, <laughs> but he was a short guy, and he was looking out through the places that blinked, you know, yeah. where, whenever he talked. Uh, Robbie became a star from this. They, he was so popular they made a second movie called The Invisible Boy mm -hmm. where he had a starring role and then he appeared in, he appeared in Lost in Space, he appeared in Twilight Zone, mm -hmm. The Flying Saucer, MGM's Flying Saucer there, uh, the C-57D also appeared in several episodes of Twilight Zone and, uh, and other things. So they spent a lot of money on this. Mm -hmm. They spent 7% of the budget, which was like a million and a half dollars on, on Robbie. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a lot of money to spend on a Robots. But what an investment they got back on them. Well, they did, yes, <laughs> and I'm sure they charged the other the other shows a, a fair amount of money to uh, to borrow him in, in later years. Forbidden Planet was a, a success at the box office, but it was a moderate success. It, it made, you know, in those days, of course, everything was, the dollar was worth more things were legend. Forbidden Planet made a couple hundred thousand dollars profit above its cost, but it was not the huge hit that MGM hoped it to be. So they backed off somewhat on the uh, idea of making A science fiction films, making big budget, heavy special effects science fiction films. But it had an enormous influence on, mm. on, things, to, uh, on things that followed. I was very struck as well by the music and the use of sound in it. It's extraordinary, even today, listening to it. The Electric Tonalities by Louie and B.B. Um, Barron mm. uh, were revolutionary. I mean, nobody had ever seen anything like that uh, before. And it's still very distinctive. I mean, you could be in another room and Forbidden mm. Planet comes on the TV and you, you hear that, that sound and you know what it is. Unfortunately, they, they were not members of the Musicians Union and they were not allowed to be nominated for an Oscar for this because uh, it was that, well, that's not music yes. and, and you're not in the union. So uh, <laughs> they couldn't even say score by or anything. Yeah. It was electric tonalities <laughs> by... Uh, that's a great name for a band. I'm sure somebody, somebody must be called Electric Tonalities. <laughs> now, again, you have to remember it was the 50s. There, and I, I mentioned there, there are things about the film that definitely show its age. The sexual attitudes, of course, are, are one of them. Uh, there's very strong gender roles. Um, the crew is all male, um, but that was it's a military crew, and in the United States, at least, again, I don't know how it was in Ireland, but the United yeah. States in the 50s, the Army, the Navies, the Air Force, the Marine Corps, were all male. There were women's auxiliaries, the wax mm. for the Army and the waves, but they, they didn't serve in frontline ships. It would be 20 years it would, before uh, they would start putting women on aircraft carriers or battleships or destroyers, so having an all-male crew was uh, part of the time. And it also, of course, it's an all-white crew. 
Truman had desegregated the army, uh, but only a few years before. And you didn't often see uh, black people in, uh, in films. Um, and if you did, it was usually, I'm, I'm glad, I'm actually glad that they just did a all male, all white crew rather than throwing in an Asian houseboy or, a, or yeah. a black serving man, which they did in some other films of the same period. Um, if, if this was remade today, and there's often been talk of uh, doing a remake of Forbidden Planet, I'm sure they would have a, a diverse uh, crew. The other thing is, of course, the attitude of the, uh, towards sex and violence. Um, you know, the, the Hayes Code uh, still prevailed at the time. We don't, didn't have motion picture ratings. There's a huge sexual subtext here mm -hmm. going on. It's, it's edible. It's, it's, you know, uh, Morbius is all alone on this planet and with a young, nubile daughter who's mm -hmm. coming into her own sexuality. And, but it's played very much as subtext. Yeah. Well, there is one scene where you see the, the officers going away and, and Morbius you know, puts his arm around, yeah. the, around his daughter and you know, the threaten to take, to take his daughter away from him, of course, is what yeah. ultimately wakes the, uh, the id monster. And women in, in the 50s, in, in America at least, were still expected to be virgins until they were married and, uh, you know, it was before the pill. So the attitudes are being reflected here. It was actually a little racy when she starts talking about, oh, I was just hugging and kissing, a yeah, little yeah, healthy yeah. stimulation. Yeah. I, I've taken courses in biology, uh, yeah. all of that stuff. Um, and the violence, you know, it is repeatedly stated that the, that, that the planetary force, the id monster, rips people apart. You know, the chief's body is spread all over the communications mm -hmm. room. Mm -hmm. The crew at a Bellerophon is mm -hmm. ripped to shreds. But you can't show any of that in a film in the 50s. The violence is very downplayed. In, in movies of that era, when somebody was shot with a gun, they just sort of fell down. Sometimes they clutched. Oh. Uh, I'm shot, and they fell down. Actually, you know, when I was watching it, I was really struck at how much they were borrowing from the tropes of radio, which was still huge in the U.S. at the time. And science fiction and horror radio is what really kicked off this kind of drama. Like, um, you know, Buck Rogers, all of them would have, you know, started in this media and then went into uh, television, well, film and television. And, you know, that exact moment I was listening to that where he's spread all over the walls and you don't see it, but you kind of already it's in your mind. And even the scenes with the footprints and the sound and you could so it's that would exactly be used in radio. And that was a kind of a common thing for people of that generation. So it wouldn't be too much of a stretch for them. Whenever they talk about making a remake, I, I, I think about this issue in particular. Um, you know, you compare this to a movie like Alien, with the chestburster scene and things like that. And how would you do Forbidden Planet? Would you would you show Jerry Farmer being disemboweled yeah. and his intestines yeah. falling out and his head being sprayed across the room? Uh, All possible. <laughs> what would happen to Morbius when yeah. when it comes through and Morbius comes? You know, you just see him sort of being making a face, and and then he's dead. Um, and I have actually mixed feelings about that. I mean, one sign is, if any of you have read Game of Thrones or watched it, you know I'm, I don't shy away from violence, but I'm not sure this particular movie would be improved by being uh, gory yeah. in, in that way or being more sexually explicit. Um, 
And I think as well because it's about unconscious, subconscious desires and even going down. I mean, actually, just loving those scenes in the, you know, the labyrinthine scenes, the little bit we see of the... Uh, the crow machine. Yeah, the whole, that the whole planet is this machine. I mean, it's and, the, and you've seen that too. I mean, when you watch Star Wars and they're yeah, inside the Death Star, that's and they're exactly, looking down, down they're looking and you up. see up and down, and, and, you, and they come across the walkway. That's I've seen that scene. Yes, since that scene. Yes. And those were astonishing special effects for the time. The yes. crow machine, Babylon Five, also used that day inside a planet where there was a, a big machine. So mm. it's it's a trope that's been borrowed uh, several times. One cool thing uh, that again was a at effect of the period was the design of the ship uh, being a flying saucer. You know, in, in 1947, an uh, aviator named Arnold, uh, flying uh, somewhere in America, saw what was later called UFOs, but he described as flying saucers. He saw nine flying saucers. That was the first reported flying saucer sighting in 1947. And in the subsequent years, hundreds of other people saw flying saucers. We didn't, they were called flying saucers then. Um, the Air Force hadn't come up with the unidentified flying object and the UFO terminology hadn't come. Uh, a very popular journalist named Donald Kehoe wrote a book called The Flying Saucers Are Real, which was a huge bestseller and convinced people that there were aliens coming and they were coming in flying saucers. And science fiction films started picking that up. Instead of the V2s and the rocket ships of an earlier era, you mm. saw in, in uh, The Thing from Another World, there's this crashed spaceship in the Antarctic, and they can see it in the ice, so the men go, well, stand where you can see it, let's see the shape of it, and then you see the men are all standing in a circle. It's mm. a crashed flying saucer. And of course, Michael Rennie and Gord arrive on Earth in the day they stood in a flying saucer. But this was the best flying saucer. I love yeah. the way the, uh, the, 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 it comes down, and then the mm. three mm. stairs come out, and of course, Twilight Zone made use of that in, in several crucial episodes in, in later years. That was uh, very cool. Little details. I'm a, I'm a fanatic for little details. Uh, I love the fact that the expedition was the Bellerophon. Uh, those of you know, who know your myth know that Bellerophon was the original writer of the winged horse Pegasus in Greek myth. And he was struck down by the gods because he tried to fly Pegasus to Mount Olympus to join the gods, and Zeus didn't like that, so he hit him with a thunderbolt. Mm -hmm. After which, uh, I think it's Theseus who picks up Pegasus later on. Yeah. But Bellerophon was his first writer. I've always been a little disappointed, though, that the uh, the military ship doesn't have a cool name. C-57A yeah, is kind of it's pretty hard to remember. Boring. I mean, you know, the Star Trek ship has numbers too, which every Trekkie knows, but. It's also the Enterprise, mm. and the Millennium Falcon is the Millennium Falcon. You know, the C-57D just doesn't <laughs> hold up with, uh, with those, uh, those things. And, this, and the special effects as well were, I mean, they still look so good, you know? That, and that the, the um, person who did that came from Disney, and he hand-drew them. The Id Monster, yes. Yeah, and they, they still, and it's, I always think it's an interesting thing when you watch older movies where they had to be innovative and often still used, um, even in the likes of uh, John Carpenter's thing, they used real, right. you know, sort of prosthetics, and it's still, even though the movies look dated, it actually, there's a certain charge to them, and, and I feel, 
with the hand drawn, it just there's something really lively about it still. The ending, there, there, I have a very mixed reaction to the ending. Mm -hmm. It's something I love and something I hate. Um, I love the last scene where they're all, first of all, I love the fact that Robbie is not burned out permanently. Yes. You know, you're, you're, you're afraid you've lost Robbie and then you see him, they're bringing him back, he's the astrogator, that's very cool. And then they watch on the view screen, they watch uh, Altair 4 blow up and I love the uh, commander's speech there, you know, that mm -hmm. in a million years, when the human race climbs to where the Krell was in their moment of triumph and tragedy, your father's name will shine again, will be heard throughout the galaxy. Mm. But it will remind us that we are, after all, not God. Beautiful scene. I, I would hate to lose that scene. Mm. On the other hand, I hate the way we get to that scene, which is plunging the let's blow up the planet switch yes. that happens to be yeah. that happens to be in the Krell lab. Yeah. Which, which Morpheus has stated earlier when he first takes them in there, this is only one of many labs. So <laughs> yeah. like, do they all have a let's blow up the planet switch? <laughs> yeah. And why would the Krell build a, 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 in case yeah. we need to blow up the planet, certainly, on, on which we all live, our civilization is, we'll, we'll put this switch here. <laughs> yeah, and, and that he figured that part out. Of all the millions of other things he didn't figure out, he figured out how to blow the place up. Yeah. You'd think that it would be locked in the one box he can't open. So, but no. <laughs> now, you know, many, many, movies, and when they come out, have a, a book that's issued to tie in with them, a novelization. I'm sure some of you have read novelizations over the years. It's a different process than, hopefully all of you have read Game of Thrones, it's good. <laughs> and in Game of Thrones, the book came first and the, and the TV show was made. But with a novelization, they make, they make the movie first and then they hire some guy to write a novelization. There was a novelization of Forbidden Planet, which is interesting in several respects. Uh, first of all, was the byline on it was W.J. Stewart, and nobody knew who that was. Uh, for a long time it was thought it was the great science fiction writer Jack Williamson, a grandmaster of science fiction, who goes all the way back to the days, because Jack Williamson wrote under the name Will Stewart, was one of his pseudonyms. So was W.J. Stewart the same as Will Stewart? The Stewart was spelled differently, though. Um, it turned out later that no, it was a mystery writer named Philip MacDonald they found out did the novelization and nobody really knows much about Philip MacDonald. But there's some interesting stuff in the novelization that indicates that at some point they may have thought to go in a different direction. In, in the novelization, there's a scene where well, they're, they're driving around in their little cart and they run over one of the monkeys. and. Dr. Ostra takes this monkey back to the uh, lab to dissect it. And when he dissects it, it's basically like solid meat with no functional internal organs. It has a vague thing that might be a heart and something that might be a stomach, but there's no, there's no circulatory system, there's nothing there. It has the external appearance of the monkey, but it could not possibly have lived which suggests and that the stuff in the movie about, yes, the Krell visited Earth millions of years yeah, ago yeah, yeah. and they brought back the seeds and that's where Altera's animals come from. That never really works if you think about it because 
If they visited Earth millions of years ago, they'd be coming back with woolly mammoths or maybe dinosaurs. They wouldn't be coming back with a modern tiger and a modern monkey and a bunch of deer that you might see anywhere here in Ireland, right? Yeah. Um, but if all of these creatures are creations of Morbius's mind, uh, that's really a lovely bit of foreshadowing for the eventual revelation of the id monster. And I think in many ways they're acting as um, a way to show how pure and innocent she is. And there is an indication when the tiger attacks that she's had, she's been kissed. She's been kissed, she's been, yes, <laughs> she's felt lust and yeah. uh, the, the virginal born sexy yesterday is yeah. uh, about, to, yeah. about to be de-virginized. Uh, <laughs> And the tiger senses that, and mm. it's you know only only virgins can touch a unicorn. Yes. Uh, yeah. There's there's all this thing in myth. But the other interesting thing that they set up that it brings in mind is with the monkey dissection scene is there's no record that Morbius was ever married. They point that out, you know, mm. your, your wife. There's no wife in Morbius. Oh yes, I look her up. Uh, you know, mm. Susie Smith. Oh, here she is. Mm -hmm. You know, I can show you the wedding certificate. Well, what the fuck does that mean? You, know, okay. you, can, you can forge them. Yeah. And then here's this beautiful nubile daughter. So it, it actually sets up the possibility of a very different ending where Altera too is a fictional construct of Morbius's mind. He's all alone on his planet and uh, he would like to have a wife or a daughter or maybe somebody who fulfills both roles. And suddenly there's this beautiful uh, girl, um, uh, of course, with that ending, then then Altera disappears at the end, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which would be kind of a shocking ending, but yeah. they planted the, the seeds for that. Yeah, and in fact, if you think about it, when he's looking into the device, the image he conjures up is actually Altera. Right. And she's... And he says, once I take this off, she disappears. Yeah, she, she's alive. He said, well, it's alive. And, well, she's alive in my mind. Right. And it, yeah. it's the same thing when the id monster attacks. How could it not be? It would sink by its own weight to the center of the planet. Um, and no, it's being recreated microsecond by microsecond. It, the, the great machine is, is mm -hmm. doing that. Mm -hmm. There's a level of scientific intelligence of... Uh, in Forbidden Planet that did not exist in many of the other science fiction films of the era. Most of the others were, ooh, atomic radiation has yeah. created giant ants, That's right. or giant locusts, yeah. or Godzilla. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we were very afraid of atomic radiation. But you get the impression that Cyril Jung, who wrote this, um, actually knew something about science and had a certain respect for it. I mean. Uh, in, in some ways, it's more sophisticated than anything in Star Trek or Star Wars. I mean, just right at the very beginning where the narrator says, and they're going to the great main sequence star Altair. That actually has a specific meaning in astronomy, and it's cool that they, that they knew that. Mm. And um, the scene where Doc Ostro was presenting this cast, and he's saying, this, this thing makes no fucking sense. Uh, it, 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 it could not be alive. It has this thing and it has this thing and they don't go together and it's a biped that could be a quadruped. And, and uh, you know, all of it is a, a lot of intelligence and it has the intelligence also about Greek myth with the Bellerophon and the whole virgin threatened thing. And of course it's Shakespearean. I mean, for those of you who, who 
some of you probably picked this up already, or others have read it. It's the Tempest. It's the Tempest on Altair Four. It's you know Prospero on the island, and he's got a daughter who's never met men before until until they arrive, and Robbie is Ariel, and the monster from the Id is Caliban. Um, so it's very uh, very Shakespearean in its uh, in its influences. I also, I, there was a funny, strange theory that started to appear in my mind as I was watching it. I was thinking, well, obviously it's setting up that Dr. Morbius is the one who's creating the, the, the id monster, but I also thought it could be Altera. Oh, that's interesting. Like, because if you look at it, it's her way to escape the planet. Mm -hmm. And he thinks it's his, there's no, there's no actual evidence that it is his subconscious that's causing it. And they say that the crew died after she was born. So I was like, hmm, maybe she's the problem. And there's at the very end when you see her hug um, the new boyfriend, she just resists this little smile. And I thought, oh, wow, she's, got, <laughs> she's just got off the planet with her superpowers. <laughs> Watch out, Earth. Here she comes. So, yeah, and, and she's got a very kind of... I, I was really struck. She she's not a lot. She really, she really she's such a great actress, and she played in that series, Honey West. She did, yeah. Which is uh, the first time there was a female detective named detective TV series in America. It was about ten years later, and I've actually watched some of Honey West. And it's really charming, and she's such a great actress. She she is indeed, and Walter Pigeon who played Morpheus, of course. Brilliant. Well established, brilliant character actor. He, he had done a lot of Shakespeare and, and other stuff like this. And I, I love his portrayal of Morbius. I mean, you watch this again, just as you expect a robot to be a guy in a box and to yeah. revolt. Morbius comes on the scene and you say, okay, here's the villain. I mean, he dresses mm. in black all the time. Mm. Mm. And, and he has a beard. Nobody except the bad guys had a beard in American films in the 50s. Yeah. Uh, Guy dressed in black with a beard, and he's a scientist. Could obviously, be a <laughs> but they keep diffusing that expectation. He gives yeah, them a nice yeah. lunch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in a gorgeous house with beautiful decor. <laughs> and then you know his explanation when he shows them the uh, the secrets of the Krell. Um, that's amazing. I also love the subtlety of uh, that they never show us the Krell. Yeah. You know, there's that great speech about what well, they left no record of their physical thing, but look, look at the arch and, mm. you know, what does that actually mean? I mean, my imagine went to town on that. What, what yeah. are, the, are the crow triangular? <laughs> are, are they, obviously they have to be like wide at the base and narrower <laughs> yeah, yeah. at the top. I don't, I don't yeah. know what the crow look like. And I, I think that is and funny you say that because I had a similar thing when I was looking at the arch and I also, it also struck me how much because so much is occluded, so much is not shown, that it, your imagination goes into the movie and it, it spins out all these other, so you, I could imagine after watching that movie you'd sit at home and start pondering all these questions. So the movie remains with you as a result. It, it does, and it, you know, there's a psychological depth to this movie if you if you stop to think about it. I mean, the whole message after after a million years of shining sanity, the Krell could never imagine what was happening. To him. Mm. Um, Morbius is a great character, and and the, the guys in the spaceship are not perfect. I mean, you know, um, Jerry Farmer is clearly just looking to get laid, mm. and uh, you know, and the, he's jealous of the captain. The captain is jealous of him. There's there's all of this kind of subtext 
You never saw that in Star Trek. You never said Bones mm. being pissed off that Kirk always got the girl. No. Uh, and uh, I think it was mandated. Uh, yeah, it was. <laughs> everybody got along perfectly, you know. Um, you never saw in Star Wars, you know, Luke Skywalker. Uh, well, I think clearly in the first movie, Luke, it was supposed to be Luke and Leia. It's something in the second movie they decided they were brother and sister. Because yeah. Har Harrison Ford had a lot more charisma yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot more chemistry on screen than uh, Mark Hamill did. Uh, so they, they changed that one in midstream, but uh, still. Yeah. Um, it's quite it's quite interesting all that came out of this. One of the things, I, again, just from watching it, I kept thinking of you. Um, it reminded me so much of Nigel Neal, who's a really good UK uh, uh, screenwriter. He did Quartermass and the, and the Pit uh, very famously, and he did. But he really loved Boffins, the scientist, the person who solves the problem, and he really believed in this. But he also understood that people had a lot of unconscious, subconscious problems, which were often projected as magical. But he always believed that it was a scientific, you know, you could always find the scientific reason for it. Um, but he valorized uh, scientists. You know, these were the people who would break down religion and we would come to a place where, you know, everything was explicable. And yet somehow there was always some, he always recognized there was this darkness, this difficulty in human beings to um, have that perfect society, that within us there is a seed that's going to mess things up. That was another thing that I, I, I hated about the, uh, the ending. Uh, you know, the, the, for me it's the one, I mean there are quibbles and all that that you mm. can go, especially with changing cultural race about questions of gender equality and diversity and all that. But for me, the real flaw is the blowing up the planet because so many of the science fiction films, um, you know, even all those giant bug movies and Godzilla and all that, the, the message is almost anti-scientific. It's, oh, uh, atomic energy is bad. Oh, yeah. research into this is bad. Oh, you know, there are some things man was not meant to know. And real science fiction never says, and that message you can't, fucking get rid of it. I mean, you watch Jurassic Park movies and it's like, oh no, we shouldn't bring back dinosaurs. That they, they were extinct, we shouldn't mess with that. I want to bring back dinosaurs and go to that That would be cool. I contribute to a, a, a research group that's trying to bring back the woolly mammoth. Um, so that's cool. I don't believe there are some things man was not meant to know. And it pisses me off that they're blowing up, you know, he says, there it goes. You know, your father, my shipmates, all the stored knowledge of the Krell. And I, no, don't blow up all the stored knowledge <laughs> yeah, of the Krell. Exactly. <laughs> you have incredible resources there. Keep it. That doesn't mean you have to make monsters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's and it's this attitude that no, we must, we must go. We can't, we can't trust ourselves. And I think that is a dangerous uh, quality. Surely, at some point, we have to do that. Well, you know, I mean, science is, has science and technology. They certainly have problems. I mean, we got we got global warming going on here. We got the danger of nuclear war and nuclear proliferation. We have, uh, you know, every technology has its dangers. Mm. And if you haven't seen the HBO miniseries Chernobyl, go, go oh, yes. watch it. It's fucking amazing yeah. and terrifying. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do these things. Um, you know, we just have to be aware of them. Uh, otherwise, we'd still be living in the Bronze Age, or maybe even the Stone Age, if, you know, oh, just making bronze something man was not meant to do. <laughs> yeah, 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 
let's stop with this bronze making. Uh, you know, stone was good enough for my grandfather. <laughs> yes, yes. Why, why, you know, try heal ourselves? Oh, Something. we have questions from the audience. Great. Let's have some. If you, what do you think? Okay, uh, 50 sci-fi films tend to be neglected by general audiences in favor of later films. Is there anything else from this period that you think is ripe for rediscovery? Yeah, I, some of the films that I mentioned before um, are certainly worth watching. The, the great science fiction films of the uh, early 50s. Uh, the Day the Earth Stood Still. Watch the original version. Don't watch the horrible remake. Um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Watch the, the 50s version is terrific. The 70s version is pretty good. The 90s version is bad. The odd version is total crap. Oh, it's very uh, nice. It just gets worse and worse when yeah, every time they remake absolutely. them. I don't know. Maybe it's my age. I, it's accused of that. These are films I saw when I was young, but I, I, I try to be objective, and sometimes remakes are an improvement. I mean, the Maltese Falcon we all love is the third Maltese Falcon, uh, the one with Humphrey Bogart. Mm -hmm. But mostly they're, they're not. Um, Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds has uh, some great stuff in it. It does. But I still prefer George Powell's War of the Worlds. Even though they didn't disapprove, I want the invaders to be Martians. I don't want to be people who've been buried for a long time, revived by lightning bolts. That makes <laughs> yeah. no goddamn sense to me. Uh, I, I can't get past that. But the, the Spielberg War of the Worlds is pretty good. Um, and it, it, the thing from another world isn't interesting. Have you seen that? Yep. Um, and you've seen the original version, the Howard Hawks version, or Christian Nyby, Howard Hawks, and the John Carpenter version. Yeah, I've seen both. Yeah. Which do you prefer? I, well, I actually am very fond of both. But, and I, now, speaking of age, I think for me, when I saw John Carpenter's The Thing, it, uh, I was at a particular age and it scared the bejesus out of me. So, and I'm a horror fan, so that was quite difficult. <laughs> but, um, and I particularly loved the final scene in that movie. I think it's... Uh, oh, yeah, it's yeah. chilling. Yeah. But I, I've always found, I've, I've had often debates with younger people about that. I think that's a generational thing. Yeah. Baby boomers like me tend to prefer the Howard Hawks version, Christian Nyby version. Mm -hmm. With its great, it has some wonderful iconic lines that have echoed down, keep watching the skies, and, uh, you know, um, Howard Hawks always had this... Howard intercutting Hawks. dialogue that uh, you know half heard going mm. back and forth. That Everyone should watch almost everything that Howard Hawks made. Younger was, people yeah. tend to prefer the uh, the John Carpenter version, mm. so that's another good one. Um, yeah, George Powell's War of Worlds, George Powell's Time Machine, again is much better than the more recent Time Machine. Mm. Uh, it's not perfect. I, there are things I would change about that. Yeah, I think, I think as well, once you have lots of effects and a more of a budget, there's a tendency to lean upon those parts rather than the story, the characters, the dialogue, you know, um, as a result, things uh, tend to go for, I mean, obviously it's a visual medium, but they forget that people can project their imagination into it. I've, they've been trying to remake Forbidden Planet for 20 years and they, they've taken several steps and it, and it never gets very far. And as much as I love this film, I pray that they never remake it because I am convinced that they will screw it up beyond compare. Uh, you know, they will, they will bring all the violence on screen, we'll actually see be people being torn to pieces. They will, Robbie will either be 
he'll look like Johnny Five or, you know, a Cylon or something like that. Or alternatively, it'll actually be an actor who will be played by a normal actor and then his, his or her skin will get ripped off and you'll see metal underneath, which they yeah. love to do. Uh, there's actually an interesting question here, you might. On a forbidden planet Easter eggs in my works. Um, hmm. Now, it says where, but you could always say there is a not and not say, and have people go crazy trying to find them. <laughs> that would be it's cruel. cheating. That would be cheating. I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I don't necessarily consider them Easter eggs, but I, I consider them little tips of the hat or homages, and I, I have stuck a number of those in, in uh, Game of Thrones and its sequels. You know, you can find references to a number of other great fantasy writers, uh, you know, Mervyn Peake and uh, Robert Jordan and um, Jack Vance, the great Jack Vance. Oh, they're they're Vance. echoed in in some of the names of the minor houses and sometimes even particular names of characters. You can even find the Three Stooges in there if you look closely. <laughs> oh my goodness. But I don't think I ever worked in uh, Forbidden Planet. I can actually see people running to Wikipedia right now. If you wrote Forbidden Planet, would Robbie the Robot have died at the end? <laughs> no! No! Who would want Robbie to die? I have to say, everyone else but Robbie. And... I might have been tempted to have Altera disappear, you know. <laughs> Planet blows up and, you know, he's holding her and huh, suddenly she's gone. <laughs> no, Morbius thought her up too. Um, These are some really in-depth questions, people. Okay. What are the timeless elements of this work? Well, uh, I think we've been talking about that. I, I, there's certainly elements of this that, that do feel dated. Uh, you can't, it's one of the problems of science fiction. You know, you, mm. you may say you're writing about the year 2392, but if you're writing it in 1967, it's gonna reflect the attitudes of 1967, not 2392. And so in that way, it shows being dated more than, you know, a movie made in 1956 that's about 1956. It doesn't tend to leap out at us. So, you know, the, the things here that are dated are um, clearly the, the all-male crew, the, the all-white crew, um, and certain elements of the sexual attitudes and, and all of that. Um, but there are things that are Timeless, I think. The, the whole question of the monster from the id that lives inside all of us. And if it had access to a crow machine, mm. who knows what the world would be like. Yeah, and Just uh, make sure the person who has access to the crow machine is a good person. What is your process for creating compelling characters? Ooh. Is there an example that reflects it in, in the movie? Uh, well, I, I think... For me, the most compelling character, we disallow Robbie, is Morbius. Uh, you know, Morbius is, despite wearing all black and having a beard, is, is not a cartoon villain. He's, he is a, a noble man who's, who's concerned about the ethics. I mean, he admires the Krell, not just that they made starships and towers of porcelain and glass and adamantine steel, but also because they were ethical and they'd left all this behind. And he's concerned about the uses to which knowledge may take place. He's in many ways a good man, but inside him are these, these lusts and these angers, and, uh, and it all comes out. Um, and to my mind, that is the key to creating um, 
a compelling character and a human character. Um, I, I don't like characters who are all white or all black because I don't see them in, in real life. Uh, you know, you read, you read biographies, you read histories, and you know, some of the noblest men in history had flaws, and uh, some of the most vile people in history had good attributes. Hitler liked dogs. Um, he was very nice to dogs. How do you weigh that against someone who maybe hated dogs and killed them, but was a wonderful, benevolent person in other respects? Uh, yeah, we always, we always have to wrestle with that, you know. Um, and we see this in in America. It's there are campaigns to take Woodrow Wilson's name off things. I think he was one of the great American presidents, but he was also a racist. Um, but he tried to end war, and he founded the League of Nations, and all of that. People are complex, and the best characters reflect that complexity. And mm -hmm. the struggle that we all have to, to do good, and, and how do we define good? Let's see, my favorite book is uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne, and the Nautilus amazes me. What is your favorite machine you've seen from sci-fi? Well, I do love The Time Machine from H.G. Uh, Wells. In the book, of course, uh, it's, it's cool, um, but as visualized, uh, the, the George Powell version of The Time Machine is, is amazing. It's just amazing. And you could buy a life-size replica of that if you have $100,000 that you don't know what to do with. There's the guy, the same guy who makes the Robbie replicas out in California has made one, and it's, I don't know what I would do with a time machine in my living room, but uh, it, it's pretty impressive with all the velvet and the Victorian and the big wheel that spins behind and all the little gnaw, levers with crystal knobs and all that. It's just a great-looking machine. And I also love the... Uh, the Martian tripods um, in War of Worlds. When George Powell made his version of War of Worlds, he couldn't he couldn't do the tripods. That getting the legs to work was, you know, they tried, but the special effects of the day were not equal. It looked too funny. So instead, he gave us these kind of manta rays that float on on levitation beams or something like that. But they're really cool looking yeah. and and yeah. creepy. So. I've always loved the, the manta rays of, uh, of War of the Worlds. How you change. If you were put in charge of a Forbidden Planet remake, how would you change the gender dynamics of the original to make it work for the 21st century? Um, well, you'd certainly have a, a crew, I think, that would be, uh, you know, there's 18, 18 prime physical specimens <laughs> who've been locked up in hyperspace for a year and a half, as he says. <laughs> And you still could have 18 prime physical specimens, um, but some of them, you know, should be African and some of them should be Asian, and you know, uh, they should be a mixed crew. And you have to be if you if you make the crew have women, though, what does that do to the to the love story and the whole idea that nobody has seen a woman for a year and a half, uh, which clearly drives at least Jerry Farmer. Um, <laughs> You'd have to adjust to, because you, obviously you need the captain falling in love with Altera and vice versa. So the captain has to fall in love with her despite the presence of presumably nine women on his ship among his 18 prime physical specimens. Um, so why, why would that? Well, maybe it's just, you know, true love or romantic thing, you know. We, we, 
we fall in love with who we fall in love with, right? Yeah, well, you know, it's kind of interesting. He's on a, a ship full of men. I mean, they, they could like each other. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it could, it, you know, maybe he's the only straight person on the ship. <laughs> so. But um, but yeah, there's I mean there's lots you lots you can do with gender dynamics, including one of the things I find interesting. If you're going to go that far in the future, why don't you have people who are you know somewhat machine, somewhat human? Does it have to be a romantic story? Do you have to be always driven by a romantic story? In you know I mean it's it's obviously I think Forbidden Planet is very much of its time, and uh, you know I'm I'm always a little less. Um, Maybe I'm just some sort of hard-hearted person, but sometimes I'm not interested in the love story. Like, say, The Martian, one of the things I loved about that movie was, you know, he actually doesn't have, um, which would be the classic Hollywood thing of he's got a, a, a wife and a child at home and they're pining after him and that's his main goal. But actually, he's got, you know, parents and he doesn't have kids and he's, he's there for science. <laughs> I love that drive. It doesn't always have to be about having a relationship for me. I mean, there are certainly ways to do it, but it, you know, you would have to think through every ramification because you can't, in, in a story, you can't just change one element. Yeah. I mean, you yeah, change absolutely. one element and it affects other elements and, and it all adds up here. So, um, you know, you can, you know, you could, you could make Morbius a woman and Altera a boy and yeah. the captain a woman and, uh, you know, how, how does all that add together? Yeah. Um, yeah, you, did you? You could make Altera not the daughter but the, the wife who died, supposedly. Maybe she's tired of being all alone on this planet with Morbius. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could go to a Solaris scenario, you know, as you... But, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, the thing is, is that you, when you have to remake a film, you have to look at the fundamentals. What are you trying to say? And what are you trying to say today versus back then? And then stuff comes from that. But I think the, the, the drive to remake these classic films is a, is a drive to cash in on their yep. reputation and to make money on it. And... The screenwriters always feel the need, and I guess the studio heads do too, because they give them notes to, to change stuff. Um, you know, we don't do that with Shakespeare. When somebody puts on a new mm -hmm. a new version of Richard III, I mean, maybe they'll change the setting, but they don't rewrite all the dialogue and uh, all of that stuff. Yeah, and why, why can't we remake yeah. these classic films using yeah. the original scripts and just remake them with, with different actors and better special effects? You know, let's let's see. Morbius, uh, you know, Walter Pigeon is long gone, but there are great character actors who could play, who could play Morbius. That would be great. Uh, would we, would we like uh, Morgan Freeman as Morbius uh, yeah. on the planet? Or, um, well, you know, you you name your favorite uh, great character actor. There's there's lots of people to do it, but don't mess with the don't mess with the dialogue. Thank you so much for coming. Yes, Thank I you. hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, George. all from this special episode. Other episodes of the iFi podcast are available from iTunes and Spotify or wherever you get your content. We'll be back with our next regular episode on Friday. I hope you'll join us then. The iFi podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. 
The IFI is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support.